question for you as we begin. It's rather a trivial piece of trivia for you. But what would you say, if I were to ask this question, how would you answer it? Not out loud, of course, unless you're just super convicted of it. Um, what is the best trilogy in movie history? Toy Story, Spider-Man, Back to the Future, Indiana Jones, maybe? Iron Man, Lord of the Rings, Star Wars. You got a little problem with Star Wars, though, because the problem with Star Wars, as I see it, a child of the 70s, is that you have to ask the next question, right? Which Star Wars trilogy? It, was that episode one, two, and three, or episode four, five, and six, which were the original one, two, and three, if I'm correct, and I'm probably not. So it's probably, I'm not the right person to ask these questions for, so just disregard the whole question. In fact, I strike the question from the record. You and I probably would never agree on the greatest trilogy, which one is the best, but, but we might all agree on this, if you're a movie buff, that within all trilogies, there's at least one movie within the three that wasn't quite on par with the other two, Right? Well, this morning we find ourselves smack dab in the middle of another kind of trilogy. And this is a trilogy of power. And Jesus is the star. But Jesus is no... ...the all-powerful God in the flesh. Now last week, as we studied the... Last part of chapter 4, we saw God, Christ's power over nature as He calmed the storm. And, by, and He did so by His Word. And this week, as we'll look at the first 20 verses of chapter 5, we'll see His power over evil as He delivers a demonized man. And next week, in the final episode of this trilogy, we'll see Christ's power over both six So I'm looking forward to uh, to getting into this this morning, as well as next week. And as we do, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we confess that You are the Son of the Most High God. And to You belong power over nature, over evil, over sickness, and over death. And by the power of Your Word, You manifested Your power over each of those areas and through your word, you powerfully work transformation in your disciples, your children, your bride. And you do so from the inside out. Lord, please glorify yourself by powerfully working your word into each one of us. And, and Lord, I ask that you would help us pay attention to your word this morning. Help me preach it clearly and help each of us listen intently. And I pray this. In the name of Jesus, amen. Let me invite you to turn to Mark chapter 5. And as one additional intro to that, let me just tell you that both Matthew and Luke include this same story in their accounts of the gospel, but they do so in a much more abbreviated form. What Matthew does in six verses, as we're about to see in our passage, Mark does in 20 verses. Part of what Mark wants to get across to us and part of what he goes to great pains to expound upon was the despair 
of the man in this story. And it is with this man's despair that I want us to begin this morning. If you draw your attention to your copy of God's Word, there in Mark chapter 5, I'd like to read the first five verses as we begin. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes, and when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs. And no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Let's think about this for a moment. Jesus went from one exhausting day straight into the very next thing. And as soon as he and his disciples arrived there on shore on the other side of the sea, he comes face to face with someone that everyone else tried to avoid. Jesus, however, made a point in his life and ministry to go to places that others avoided and to interact with people that others hated. I want us to see not only the four details of uncleanness that Mark provides in this passage, this, this is one of those extras that he inserts, but I also want to see their gospel significance to us this morning as we jump into this passage. Consider this, his, his state of uncleanness. There are four of them. I'll just briefly point these out from the passage. The first one is obvious. He is a man with an unclean spirit. This is the third time Mark highlights the deliverance of one who has an unclean spirit. But by far, this is the most graphic and descriptive of those things. So the, the first thing that Mark points out to us is in the details of his uncleanness is that he is a man of unclean spirit. The second thing is this. He, he lives among the tombs. Whether he was relegated to this place by the townspeople or, or, or maybe he just felt more at home among the dead. Either one of those is rather unclear. It's not made clear from our passage. But what is clear is this. His dwelling among the dead rendered him unclean. Numbers chapter 19 had been very clear in instruction to the children of Israel that anyone who failed to purify himself from the pollution of tombs, so if, if, if that was your practice and you failed to go through a seven-day purification process, then the result would be that you must be cut off from Israel. He's a man of unclean spirit, or with an unclean spirit, and he's a man who lived among the tombs. The third thing that we see here is that, and this takes a little bit of kind of digging in for a second, but he, he was a man who lived among the Gentiles in the area of the Decapolis. You see that word, we haven't read it yet, but it comes up in verse 20. You and I who grew up in these North Georgia, East Tennessee region might refer to the area in Northeast Tennessee that holds Bristol and Kingsport as the Tri-Cities, right? We, we may not even name those names, but we may use the name, we're going up to the Tri-Cities. Similarly, verse 20 
gives a broader understanding of what's going on here that he lives in the area of the Decapolis, Deca, 10. He lives in the area of the Decapolis, and the Decapolis is a term for that area. It was a group of about 10 cities all east of the shore where he had landed with his disciples. Just a brief touch of history because it fills in a little bit of our understanding here. When Pompey invaded Palestine in 63 BC, he severed these 10 cities from the previous Hasmonean rule. The Hasmonean dynasty remained until the mid-30s, but he was able to take these 10 cities away, and he did so so as to establish them, here's what's important, as a showcase city or area of cities of pagan, Hellenistic culture and ideals. No self-respecting Jewish person would have lived here. In fact, quite on the contrary, self-respecting Jewish people would have avoided this area. This is where the disciples were told to go with Jesus and where Jesus had instructed them to go. I'm reminded of another time Jesus will be with the disciples. When all other self-respecting Jews would have circumnavigated around Samaria, Jesus had to go through. And it was in that area that he had the encounter with what we affectionately refer to as the Samaritan woman, right? Fourth and final thing. He is surrounded by people employed in the unclean profession of raising swine. Mark also provides us with the description of not only where he's lived, that he's a man of unclean spirit, that he lived in the Decapolis among the tombs, but he's also employed or he's living around people who are employed by this unclean profession of raising swine. But he doesn't limit our understanding in the backstory of what we know about the uncleanness that is evident in these four different ways in these first five verses. He goes on to paint a picture of his state of being. So we see the state of uncleanness, and then he, he elaborates on this man's state of being. They're pretty obvious, so I just want to list them for you with little... Um, commentary or clarification to it. The first is this, he is unclothed. The other Gospels make this point just blatantly clear and say that he is naked. We have to infer from the fact later on in our passage because uh, after he is met with Jesus and he is, he is referred to as being clothed and in his right mind, the opposite would have been true as his state of being. Okay, so the first, he is unclothed. Second is this, he's, he's not in his right mind. And all of this is under the influence, not of his upbringing, but this um, fact that he is uh, possessed by an unclean spirit. Third thing, somehow there's superhuman strength going on because he could not be bound by any chain. This has some gospel significance to us in what is about to happen as release and freedom for him. But the physical picture here is that he could not be bound by any chain. Number four, night and day, the townspeoples from the neighboring areas can hear him crying out. He's crying out in anguish. He's crying out in pain. He's crying out in torment. He's crying out in despair. This is his life. The fifth and final thing I'll bring up to you is that 
The passage lets us know that he inflicted himself with harm, cutting himself with stones. Of all of this, the uncleanness and the state of his being, one commentator, James Edwards, writes this about this man, saying that he is one of the most lamentable stories of human wretchedness in the Bible. My mind goes to Job, but for all different reasons, right? Even in life, this man is consigned to the land of the dead. But thanks be to God, right? And I just want to put an explanation point here at the power of the gospel. Thanks be to God, as we'll soon see, he did not remain that way. We're begged to ask the question, why the extra details, Mark? And I would, I would just kind of venture this as an idea for us to consider that the details that Mark provides and that he includes, he expounds upon, they serve as, as background material for a testimony of a life that had previously been shackled. Deliverance for him and even through the eyes and understandings of all who had looked in on, and all who had heard him, and all who did everything they could to avoid him, deliverance for him seemed as impossible as survival had for the disciples when they're in the midst of a stormy sea getting to this location. I, have a, I just want to pause just for a second. I know most people in this room but offer this invitation for those whom I know and those whom I have not yet had the pleasure to meet. But if you're here this morning in deep despair and chained to sin, be encouraged. There is no depth of despair from which Jesus cannot deliver you, nor is there sin so great that His blood cannot cleanse. And this is exactly what's about to happen in this man's life. So let's continue. We go from despair to a picture of deliverance as seen in verses 6 through 13. I break this up a little bit along the way. Starting with verse 6, however. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down from before him, and crying out with a loud voice, he said, what have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he, now that he is Jesus, for he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he replied, so this is back to the man. It goes back and forth. It's a little confusing if all you're doing is hearing me. But he, he replies, My name is Legion, for we are many. Let's stop just for a moment and talk about what we've seen so far. And let me do so by suggesting that we've just heard two questions that set straight the hierarchy. Speaking through the man, the unclean spirits, and now I'm using plural, the unclean spirits ask Jesus, what have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Note three things about this evil spirit. Number one, when Jesus landed, 
This guy approaches him, probably loudly, probably aggressively. That's the way he rolled. That's the way he approached anyone crazy enough to come near him. But when he does, here's the first thing. He prostrated himself before him and fell down before Jesus. If there is a poster child of intimidation, it's this guy. But surprisingly, and we're supposed to see this because this is, this is the way it is before the Lord. When he ran up to Jesus, he prostrates himself. Mark this in your understanding. Any notes you want to put or just brand it on your brain. When demoniac meets divine, it is a no contest event. Second thing that we see here about the demoniac, about this evil spirit, not the person, the evil spirit. Second thing, he addressed him as Jesus. That name that fits his divine purpose for coming. And that name that Joseph, his earthly father, had been given to give to him because it describes his purpose. That is, he will save his people from their sins. The third thing we see here is the additional way he talks about him, addresses him, I should say. And that's this, he, he uses the words, Jesus the Son of the Most High God. Now these words are often used throughout the Old Testament, more often than not by Gentiles, so as to refer to the superiority of the one true God in contrast to all the other many gods. And I use the lowercase g here because God is God and above Him there is no other. So in reference to him throughout the Old Testament, especially by Gentiles, in recognition to that, they would refer to him as the son of the most high God. I think I said three. I want to share one more thing about this evil spirit, and that's this. Having spent all of his tormenting time in this person as the tormentor, the tormentor now begs not to be tormented. He does so because all of a sudden he finds himself in the presence of one who is superior to him. This is an admission of subservience. He is recognizing in front of him is someone greater than me. As Jesus was commanding the unclean spirit to come out of him, to come out of this man, he asked, Jesus now, asked the second question that I want to present to you and I want to point out. Notice what Jesus asked. Jesus asked, What is your name? It's not that Jesus doesn't know. But in the first century, naming someone was seen as claiming or even gaining power over the one named. Jesus, however, is not just showing His power and authority over the demonic tormentor. He's also exposing the extent of this man's impossible predicament and captivity. When Jesus asked the tormented man, these, the spirits within this man, that question, what is your name? The demons responded, my name is Legion, for we are many. 
and forced to reveal his true identity, we learn that this demon is not one, but many. And a Roman soldier, which this would have been Roman soldier occupation on the eastern side, as all of it, but they're not, this is not foreign to them, right? So a Roman legion consisted of about 6,000 men. Point being, what Mark is hitting us with is this, this man's state of being is in despair. He is a man of unclean spirit and everything about his existence is one of torment and desperation. We've talked to about two questions that set straight the hierarchy. Let's take just a moment before we leave this section to find one request. This will come from the tormentor, the, the evil spirits. One request that put off the inevitable. It's kind of wordy, but let me explain it and I hope you see the significance of it. Let me take you back to our passage. Notice what the evil spirit says to Jesus in response to, he's just answered the question, my name is Legion, for we are many. And then he goes on to say, and he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country, out of that area of of pagan influence. And then he goes on to say, now Mark does. So we're no longer quoting, we're in the narrative again. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs and the herd, numbering about 2,000. They rushed down the steep bank and into the sea, and they drowned in the sea. Quite a picture, don't you think? I'm tempted to rewrite the little nursery rhyme of this little piggy went to the market, but I fear that would also be divergent to our attention spans, much less mine. Notice what's going on here. These demons begged him not to send him out of the country. And it's little wonder, there amidst such godless activity and worldliness, that the job of keeping people in darkness was no doubt easier. (laughs) But they're also begging Jesus not to permanently banish them to their eternal torment. And you want to catch this. Back in Matthew's account, which we didn't read, but it's the one that only had six verses in the whole narrative, we're given a clue to something of this, the great future significance. So something is mentioned in Matthew that, that clicks us to think farther than the current event. In Matthew chapter 8, verse 29, we read this. Have you come here to torment us? And then he adds these words. Before the time? Before the time. Allow me to point to the future. The book of Revelation speaks of a final battle. And at the conclusion of what Revelation's chapter 20 verse 7 refers to as the thousand years... Satan will be released. He will gather his minions for one final attempt to throw God and 
uh, I'm sorry, to overthrow God and to disrupt His rule and reign. But, despite their best efforts, fire will come down and consume them. The devil, that great deceiver and his demonic followers, will then be thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That is the inevitable that awaits the devil and his demonic forces that I'm referring to in this outline. And I would be remiss not to mention. It is the inevitable that awaits all who reject the Lord. He's asked this question. Have you come here to torment us before the time? They knew that the time was coming, but as of yet, that time had not come. So they begged to be cast into a herd of 2,000 swine, and Jesus obliged. And when the pigs experienced the tor- what the tormented man had been living with, they rushed headlong down the steep bank into the sea, and they are drowned in that very sea. I don't know what, where the expression hog heaven came from, but I mean, maybe, maybe it finds its roots here. On second thought, that's the third thing that I wish I could take back this morning. Let's move on. Because I want you to see something here. That what is history's reminder is today's hope for us. History's reminder, today's hope. Before we jump into the story's conclusion, let me draw your attention to something that you're very familiar with from Israel's history. Centuries earlier, the children of Israel witnessed God controlling the sea. And then he followed up his control of the parting of the Red Sea and the squishing it back together with the drowning of the nation's enemies that had held them captive for so long. Lock that in your mind. After Israel had been released from their slavery at the hands of Egypt, the Egyptian leadership and Pharaoh changed their minds and they pursued them to the edge of the Red Sea. And as you know, God parted the waters of the Red Sea and the children of Israel crossed and followed closely behind the Egyptian army, right? But at God's command, the sea swallowed up Israel's enemies, the Egyptian army, and Israel was able to be witness to the powerful right hand of God delivering them. These are not the same story, so I'm not... Contending that. But, in a way, we can look at our passage that we're looking at this morning as a type of second exodus, if you will. This time, deliverance is not national, however. It's spiritual. This good news is for all of us this morning. In the same way, think of last week's sermon. In the same way that Jesus traveled through a storm to get to the other side with what seems to be the singular purpose of delivering a man from the clutching grip of Satan, 
In the same way He did that, Jesus took on flesh and dwelt among us, living in the midst of our stuff, although without sin. And He did so with the express purpose of delivering, or let me use the word, redeeming sinful man from the clutch and grip of Satan and sin. If you have not, will you trust Him today, Jesus, for the cleansing of your own sin? Let's look to the conclusion of this story in verses 14 to 20. We've seen the progression here is it began with despair. And then we've seen a deliverance. And now we turn our attention to a decision. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and they saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region As he was getting into the boat, something happened. (laughs) The man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. Let's consider this in a few different ways. First way is this, an understandable fear. When the people of the town heard the reports that, frankly, their prized pigs, creatures that they cared more about than this human life, had been Uh, demonized, run off the hill to their death, income gone, they were afraid. Their fear was understandable. Think about it. In the middle of that stormy water, the disciples had been afraid in the boat at the display of God's power. And now, Compound that with the fact that these are pagan townspeople who are seeing something that they thought was totally impossible. They're no different. Unfortunately, at this point in time in history, neither one of these fears lead to faith. It would in the disciples. We don't know if it ever did in the area of these townspeople. So it's an understandable fear. The second thing we see that I want to point out is an eternal mistake. An eternal mistake. Whereas the disciples stayed with Jesus and eventually by God's grace would would come to believe and understand, the townspeople made a different decision. They begged Jesus to depart from their region. Now listen, When confronted with Jesus, when confronted by Jesus, all people have a decision. And unfortunately, most do the same as the people of the Decapolis did. We have a question as we interface with this Scripture this morning. And the question for us is, as we engage with this passage is, what am I going to do? Or, What am I doing? 
Or better yet, what will I do? Will I too reject Him? Or will I reject the things of the world and embrace Christ as the way and the truth and the life? So it was an understandable fear. And for all we know, the people made an eternal mistake by their rejection and begging Him to leave. I say for all we know because there's still more to this story that I'll share with you in just a second. But I want you to see something else here. Because within this last thing, there was another decision made which gives us an authentic picture. An authentic picture. Mark provides us with just a beautiful picture of the power of the gospel and of discipleship in these final verses. Remember Paul's words in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17? He says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is passed away, and behold, the new has come. Back to our passage this morning. And they came to Jesus and they saw the demon-possessed man. Notice the language. I don't know if you caught it the first time, but listen to this, that which was old becoming new. Look at what they saw. They saw the one who had had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. Notice what else they saw. And as he was getting into the boat, Jesus that is, with his disciples to do what the townspeople had begged him to do, leave the man who had been changed, who had been possessed with demons. I don't want you to miss these past tenses because it is the core of the gospel. There is a replacement that goes on as a result of the gospel whereby we who were following after the devil, our flesh, and the world, we die to that self and we are raised to walk in newness of life in Christ. So that which was no longer is. The townspeople, however, begged Jesus to leave. But the one who had been unshackled begged, notice this language, that he might be with him. This is significant, and I, I cannot help but realize that it's intentional by Mark. This exact language, that he might be with him, is a picture of discipleship. But it's also something you and I have already seen. Back in the earlier part of this book, when Jesus calls His twelve disciples, Mark recorded one of His purposes for them, which is one of the purposes for all of us to, as disciples. So Jesus, when He appointed the twelve, He did so, so that, and I'm quoting, so that they might be with Him. The very thing that this unshackled convert desires desperately to do is to remain connected to who he realized was divine. Jesus had different plans for him though. Whether he is a Jewish brother or a Gentile convert, the text does not make clear. But one thing is certain. He was I've put this in our notes here. He was an unlikely missionary. He was an unlikely missionary. 
Notice what it says. Jesus is the he that I'm speaking of. And he did not permit him, but he said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. What is mercy? Mercy is withholding what we deserve. And by grace, he dumps upon us what we do not deserve. And he wanted him to go back to his friends and tell them what the Lord had done for them and how he has had mercy on him. And notice what he does. And he went away. And he began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And notice, everyone marveled. Did they respond? I don't know. It is interesting because they're no longer seeing that message with fear as they were. But I have to have hopes that as we proclaim the mercy that has been poured out upon us, those with whom we share it will go from fear to fearing the one true God in their life. And who better to hear from in the Decapolis than the man of whom they had previously all been afraid. This is a beautiful passage. It is not atypical of the way that Jesus worked, nor is it atypical of the way that He works. The man in this story had self-inflicted scars from stones he used to cut himself with in his desperate state. But his worst scars were not physical. And it kind of sets the table for me to ask us some reflective questions this morning. Are you in this room deeply scarred? Do you have filthy habits? Maybe a, a mouth that's out of control that has had little clean to say in years? Or is dishonesty a way of life for you? Is your scar sexual? Whether that be heterosexual or homosexual. Whatever your scar, you are not without hope. Nor are you beyond the help of the Savior. In fact, not so. Jesus, who calmed the stormy sea, also calms the storm-tossed soul. He can do this with a word. Why? Because He has healed them with His wounds. Taste and see. That this Lord is good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You this morning for Jesus. We thank You for the testimony of this previously physically and spiritually bound man.
And we thank You that the Gospel has powers to break the bonds of despair, sin, and habits. Lord, I could not help, as You know, remember the childhood radio program Unshackled that I listened to mainly, most, mostly all of my life. Recalling the testimonies of Your glorious salvation to people who called upon the name of Jesus to be saved. And they were. Likewise, You have made it possible for us to do the same. And I pray that if there are people within this room that have never trusted You as their Lord and Savior, that they would do so this morning. That they would repent of their sin, die to their flesh, and find their life in You, Jesus. And that they would inquire, maybe from one of us, on what that looks like and what's next, or even how to do it. Lord, don't let this day end without them dealing with You in such a way that brings glory to You and not shame upon their own heart. May none of us be like the townspeople who begged You to leave. But may we be like this person for whom You traveled across the water to see and deliver, desiring to be with You. Thank You that You desire to be with us and You made a way for it to happen. O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.